Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. One of the most visible tools of international cooperation on peace and security are UN peacekeepers, blue helmets. Since the advent of UN peacekeeping in the late 1940s, the institution of UN peacekeeping and the circumstances in which blue helmets deploy have changed considerably. In recent years, the role of UN peacekeepers and the peace and security architecture of the United Nations itself have undergone a very rapid transformation. Today, there are about 95,000 uniformed personnel deployed to 13 peacekeeping missions around the world. Though the United States deploys very few boots on the ground to peacekeeping missions, it is still the single largest funder of UN peacekeeping. And as a veto-wielding member of the Security Council, it also determines where peacekeepers should be sent. This means that the United States holds tremendous potential to determine the effectiveness of UN peacekeeping. My guest today, Victoria Holt, has spent a career studying what makes UN peacekeeping work and designing policies to strengthen American support for UN peacekeeping. Victoria Holt is Vice President at the Henry L. Stimson Center and served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Security during the two terms of the Obama administration. We kick off with a brief history of UN peacekeeping and how it's changed over the years before having a broader conversation about what opportunities exist for the United States to help strengthen UN peacekeeping and also bolster the larger peace and security architecture in which UN peacekeeping operates. The incoming Biden administration and new Congress present certain opportunities for the United States to bolster its multilateral cooperation on peace and security issues, and this episode takes a deep dive into some of the ways that might happen. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the incoming 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And now here is my conversation with Victoria Holt of the Stimson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
Well, while it's famously said that peacekeeping is not in the UN Charter, it's among the best known activities of the United Nations. It started as monitoring ceasefires with blue helmets upholding peace agreements. But towards the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the 90s, we saw a real shift and increase of conflicts within countries. So peacekeeping became more involved in a number of ways in the protection of civilians and support to political agreements and increasingly building out governance, rule of law, support to human rights and trying to prevent uh, erosion of governance. So today's modern peacekeeping missions are sent in first to support a political agreement to bring an end to conflict, to help the parties to a peace get to yes, but also to provide a reminder and support to the security of civilians who are often at the heart of modern conflicts. So these missions have deployed since the, the mid to late 90s in, in ups and downs. Um, most mandates now have Chapter 7 authority, which allows peacekeeping missions, which are led by an SRSG as a civilian leader. And have that's the um, special re- uh, special representative of the secretary general, the top civilian right. head of a peacekeeping mission, as opposed to like the military head of the peacekeeping mission. Thanks, Mark. That's actually mm-hmm. right. And, and yeah. maybe I should just say you can try to stump me with a UN uh, acronym. Let's <laughs> see. I, I have been stumped before, but it's been a while. Uh, I think you're probably quite fluent <laughs> in some of the language. But these missions are made up of a mix of military, police and civilians led by a civilian SRSG, the Special Representative Secretary General, with a usually with a force commander, a police commissioner, and then leaders who head humanitarian development, human rights, civil and political affairs, among other areas, increasingly also with gender advisors. So as I mentioned, the first goal is to support a political process. And sometimes a peace agreement's already in place, sometimes there is not, but the goal is to come to a place where the conflict is ending and the transfer back to a government of governance. But also many of the modern conflicts and ones that we've seen since the 90s increasingly had civilians at the heart of the conflict, most extreme in Rwanda, Srebrenica, where missions were deployed, but at the time unable or unknowing about what to do to protect civilians. So that has been a big shift. And uh, for the last 20 years, missions have been mandated to protect civilians And increasingly, and with some credit to the UN, they've really designed both a conceptual framework on how to do this, how to shape an environment, how to support a political peace, and when necessary, to provide physical support and protection to those who come in harm's way. Maybe worth emphasizing for listeners that something you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, when peacekeeping was first created, it was created to keep a peace uh, between usually two different countries, but now oftentimes peacekeepers are deployed oftentimes in the midst of some sort of conflict in which civilians are the primary target and it's often an internal conflict and you know peacekeeping has had to adjust in in that process to put as you said civilian protection at the heart of of their mandate and that has been I think the you know just the single biggest shift over the last several decades in UN peacekeeping. Yes, I think that's right. Um, I will also note, starting after, um, during the Bush administration in particular, the post-conflict architecture grew. So you had, say, in Liberia or Haiti, Sierra Leone, in East Timor, when the violence had been quelled, there was a real recognition that these countries needed to have basic governance and rule of law stood up. Accountability mechanisms and human rights were missing. 
So you saw a much more multidimensional peace operations come in that brought in suites of civilian experts and worked directly with both civil society and the country's government to try and stand up institutions that long run will provide not just security, but rule of law and uh, long-term protection for the population. So that's another trend I would flag. So you were the official in the Obama administration, uh, most, I'd say, directly in charge of setting U.S. policy towards U.N. peacekeeping, U.N. peace operations, and other aspects of the U.N. security architecture. Um, What were some of your priorities during those years? Well, let me say the priorities of the Obama administration were to work with partners and allies and try and make uh, the best effort to prevent conflict and to restore peace where possible. And pretty quickly, not driven by policy per se, but in response to crises, we saw an earthquake in Haiti that demanded an immediate humanitarian response. And while the UN mission had lost many lives in the earthquake, they became first contact for some of the US military sent down to help support the aid delivery. Um, We also saw an election in Cote d'Ivoire where two, uh, two leaders claimed the rightful presidency and it took months as a peacekeeping mission helped support uh, what was a political strategy to try and arrive at the rightful uh, winner of that election. We also saw independence come for South Sudan. Uh, That is a multi-decade effort by the United States to support uh, what became South Sudan, and with that, a new UN operation. Likewise, missions had to get shifted, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, when a crisis, multiple crises in the East required a response. So it wasn't just a matter of policy, Mark. It was a matter of how do you best deal with crises around the world? What's the toolkit available? And that evolved for us to recognize in CAR, in Central African Republic, in Mali, in Somalia, in other countries uh, where there is a crisis, whether it was almost state failure in Mali um, or ethnic cleansing in CAR, that the toolkit of the UN was often the first choice. And and CAR is, of course, the Central African Republic, and that was a new mission that deployed uh, during the Obama administration. But uh, maybe just to emphasize um, the mission in, in southern Sudan, which you were there for the creation of, I mean, when that country soon after independence descended into civil war, you really saw that civilian protection mandate come to the forefront. You had like hundreds of thousands of civilians, if I recall, would uh, flock to UN peacekeeping bases to you know seek some modicum of safety from the fighting around them. And that's just something, the idea of UN peacekeepers opening up their bases to fleeing civilians, that just not would not have happened you know, decades ago. Well, yes, you're right. South Sudan was a situation where the internal fractures and the potential for violence had been underestimated. And the UN had to turn quickly and did turn quickly to try and protect civilians fleeing from violence. And to this day, still have many civilians living in in protection of civilians' compounds. And when that happened, we realized that the basis of the political agreement, which is the fundamental of a peacekeeping mission, had pretty much been eroded. And so in the short run, that mission really was meant to be focused on protection of civilians. And then the political process could be reestablished. You know, some of these operations also demonstrated, even when the Security Council together acts swiftly, to authorize more capacity as we did in South Sudan. And then later on uh, in response to interventions, both by African forces and the French in both Mali and Central African Republic. But the ability of the UN to turn quickly 
and provide the capacities that it needed to respond were not available. And this was because UN missions depend on basically nations to come forward and volunteer capabilities. And what we found was often in short supply were things like logisticians and engineers, female police officers, and sometimes those who could operate in Chapter 7 environments. And so it was sort of a problem in plain sight that even when the Security Council acted swiftly, the capacity to deploy quickly was not available to the UN, which led to what uh, became first a summit led by then Vice President Biden, calling out to member states with a list of what the UN needed and asking them to offer up more capacity, both in human capacity, logistics, sometimes in um, military as well, so that when the UN needed a rapid response, or the member states, the Security Council called for one, that capability would be available. And maybe it's it's worth emphasizing that this, this summit, which I remember... Um... I was watching the live stream of it at, at the time. It was at uh, during the UN General Assembly, and it, you had the Vice President then Biden, um, you know, sit in the chair seat, and people around the room, you know, foreign ministers and presidents and and heads of state from other countries, you know, just sort of making announcements of additional capacities that they would contribute to UN peacekeeping operations to make them more effective, whether it was like a police unit or a female police unit or a helicopter or two. It was just kind of like a, almost like a a reverse auction. They were kind of giving away um, capacity to the UN and, and, you know, Biden was, was the one sharing the thing. Well, actually, we did two summits. And, and, and then Obama and, did too, right? Yeah. Right. So yeah. actually, Biden held a special uh, session that we tried to basically raise attention to the gaps in UN missions. But you're, I think, potentially thinking of the following year in 2015, President Obama hosted during the opening of the General Assembly, but not in the Security Council, because it was based on all the members of the UN being invited if they would then pledge from a list of what the gaps were that mm. the UN had provided to not just the United States, but to the world. That is what and, I am thinking of. Yeah, yes. the Obama summit. Yes. Yes, yes. And uh, we were very pleased that that day, I think, uh, started off with at least 30,000 pledges. Uh, and then by the end, we had exceeded that. And this process has continued. So there's been over 50,000 pledges of more mm. capacity to the United Nations since that process kicked off. Uh, reverse auction. I may try that in the future. <laughs> I do remember that we told every government that you, there would be a, um, an I- set of icons that would light up over uh, when when the uh, head of state uh, was speaking, and therefore they needed to give us their commitments in advance so the ah. icons could be identified, which is a wonderful forcing mechanism. <laughs> there you go. Um, by icon. I like that. Um, so, so that was basically the, the, the scene when the Trump administration took office in the last say four years, you know, how has UN peacekeeping changed or, or how has the architecture for UN peace and security issues changed more broadly, perhaps as a result of actions taken by the Trump administration, or perhaps not just as just a general trends evolved, like what have been some of the, the key um, themes and issues over these last few years. Right. Well, let me let me take the broader trend first. Which, if you if you look at the last four years into where we are today, the disruption and displacement of people around the world is at record numbers. We keep saying this, and it's now at roughly eighty million 
people are displaced. And I think that is often and mainly a cause of from conflict. And so in a sense, it reinforces the importance of the role of security council to try to prevent conflict and to try and address it where it starts, because this is one of the repercussions of the failure to do so. Obviously, other trends include the growth of non-state actors, proxy wars, the rise of authoritarianism, a disregard for international humanitarian human rights law, uh, increasing competition among many states, great, great powers and others. And so in a sense, the rules of the road have really been weakened. And I think that uh, we've seen the results of many conflicts. I should also note Syria, there was a small peace operation there, an observer mission that went in to try and prevent what we have seen since evolve. And it was not able to succeed, but it reminds us of the power of observers to try and try and bear witness to what's going on. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the mission that ran from April 2012 to August 2012. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, Mark, we've got this immense shift to an increasing conflict and its effects. And just as the post-Cold War taught us that conflict can often happen within states, we're now in a new, new period where while these trends have always existed, they've really shifted, I think, the landscape. And they need to think broadly about the architecture of conflict prevention and what we do to address them. So I would say, I certainly think that's that's been concurrent with the Trump administration. Some of that preceded it, um, but it's definitely been exacerbated. You know, obviously one or two other trends that we've got climate change and we recognize that that is uh, increasing security risks to countries around the world and regions. And then of course, if we've come to the present moment, the pandemic, um, which is both, you know, a, a terrible crisis, uh, but also having massive economic impacts. And OCHA just put out its numbers. Um, and it's pretty hard to see the number of people and the amount of money they want to uh, raise. And they know coming out of the gate that that's going to be a heavy lift. So that's first trends. I, you know, I, I think the Trump administration was, uh, you know, really uh, rejected allies and alliances. It tended to want to criticize and beat up on the very countries and institutions that traditionally have supported both U.S. interests and our value system. Um, And I think the main way that we saw that was withholding funding. Now, on one hand, this has been a traditional view that the U.S. should pay less for U.N. peacekeeping, but most administrations, including the Bush administration, Obama administration, had tried to pay our full dues, both in the regular budget peacekeeping. Um, but instead of asking Congress for that, the Trump administration did not. And I, I fear that we're heading towards nearly $1 billion in arrears for UN peacekeeping, which at the same time, the U.S. continued during the Trump administration to vote for peacekeeping missions, and in some cases to go to them and to call for improvements in performance and accountability to stop sexual exploitation and abuse, and actually was very supportive of a number of efforts, including um, Action for Peacekeeping, A4P, and other basically very sound reform and modernization efforts. So yeah, I maybe say, it's just worth emphasizing as a member of the Security Council, as a permanent member of the Security Council, veto-wielding member, the United States, you know, basically has effective veto over any mission. It continued to approve missions, yet during the Trump administration, it refused to pay for the missions that it had approved. Well, it, I would say it's mixed. I mean, the U.S., thanks to Congress... Um, provided the State Department with the assessed funding uh, mm. up to 25% of what we owed to the United Nations. And in general, the State Department was paying at that level, is my understanding. 
there is a gap. Um, the cap by Congress at 25% does not reflect the amount that the U.S. is uh, basically assessed for its peacekeeping dues, which is between 27 and 28%. So that's where the funding has uh, been the gap. And actually, the U.S. has a chance. Uh, this coming year in 2021, there'll be a negotiation on those assessment rates mm -hmm. and potentially an opportunity for Congress and the administration to align and for the U.S. to go into those negotiations and get Congress to put up the funding to pay back the old dues and to realign what we are assessed and what we pay. Um, and also, I believe it was last year, the U.N. underwent something of a reorg. Uh, what I used to know as the Department of Peacekeeping Operations became the Department of Peace Operations, and what used to be known as the Department of Political Affairs became the Department of Political and Peace Building Affairs. And those two departments are intended to work more closely together in order to um, sort of work along the entire spectrum of conflict, from conflict prevention, like you mentioned, to the deployment of peacekeepers. Um, what can you say about that reorganization and how significant it has been internally in the UN and about how the United States might support that kind of effort of looking at conflicts along their full spectrum? Well, it certainly makes sense to look at conflicts across their full spectrum. And the Secretary General's effort to do that better and to better integrate what, as you point out, was the Department of Political Affairs with peace building and with peace operations, peacekeeping makes full sense. And I think if anything, it could go deeper and be strengthened so that whether you're looking at a ceasefire monitoring mission, an effort to rid countries of chemical weapons, a uh, multi-dimensional peacekeeping mission and or support to peace enforcement, that you could have one area where these are all worked out together with knowledge of the region and expertise. Um, the Secretary General also, has given more authority to the field. And so whether you're a political leader of um, a mission in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Colombia, or South Sudan, Mali, uh, et cetera, that the leaders of those missions are more able and should, I think, take the responsibility and have the authority to make decisions about the political way forward, about financial decisions, et cetera. So I think that's a really good effort. The bigger challenge is how do you come up with strategies? And I think one of the things the United States can bring, bring forward is a real engagement in the diplomatic side of all of these crises. You know, the U.S., when we have a full complement and our mission in New York, not just one ambassador, but the full five that we have authority to have. When we link the multi Do you mean by the full five? Can you explain what you mean? Yeah, sorry. So the United States in, in New York at the mission has a permanent representative. Mm -hmm. That's but, commonly known as the U.N. ambassador. Exactly. To right. be Linda Thomas-Greenfield, yeah. That's the nominee, correct, right? Yeah. And usually she or he has four other ambassadors serving along the permanent representative of the ambassador who support the work of the Security Council as well as ECOSOC, management reform, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was concerning that during much of the Trump administration, we never had the full complement. Mm -hmm. Senate confirmed five ambassadors. So I think first you start with engagement and strategy. And I think the UN's gone a long way to look at early warning and analysis, understand security risks, look at performance and accountability across the whole suite 
of what the Security Council tools are to deal with not just peace operations and conflict prevention, but nonproliferation, extremism, um, basically the challenges up and down the board for any kind of conflict. And so the U.S. can really help, I think, better lead to link up those tools with the idea of what the political strategies are. Um, so that's one uh, obvious um, opportunity for the incoming administration. Uh, what else do you see in terms of how the U.S. might better engage the U.N.'s peace and security architecture to, you know, promote promote you know both self interest, enhance national security, but also you know global security as well. Well, as, as the um, incoming administration has said, they want to strengthen and build alliances and work to support uh, challenges, including climate change, the pandemic, the proliferation of nuclear material and weapons, um, and to deal with conflict prevention. And so I think starting out by just re-engaging in the world, as we know the administration has pledged to do, um, rejoining the and paying our dues in the World Health Organization, the Climate Accords, um, the long list of efforts that help reduce risk will be a priority. And within the Security Council, I think that the U.S. will be able to bring coherence to this agenda. Um, you know, the Council has greater fractures than it did uh, a few years back, but there's still areas of cooperation. So let me maybe briefly mention on the peace operations side, you know, the United States is still the largest trainer of peacekeeping um, personnel in the world through our Global Peace Operations Initiative and also support to uh, deployments around the world through uh, other accounts, the State Department. And that is like a very under-recognized area which could continue. I think on the leadership side, the U.S. has often argued for the best person to lead something. and That's another area where we could continue to strengthen the quality of those who are chosen to lead missions. Um, I think more broadly, if you, if you step out, the, the political strategies issue is one I've already mentioned. I think the link to climate change is one that deserves recognition by the Security Council. And not just as a security risk, but to also understand how the UN tools in the field can be addressing and working with the other UN mechanisms that are trying to help fragile states. Like, like what do you mean by that? For example, um, the UN often deploys to fragile states, and these states are often not just conflict-affected, but climate-affected, and often have low access to energy if you look at the SDG lists. And yet, they have the benefit of UN field missions. So in some cases, these missions, which need to pay to bring in their own energy resources and are often reliant on diesel and diesel generators, could instead start from the beginning working with the country team and the host nation to say, how would the resources we're bringing potentially leverage access to energy where we deploy? And this has already begun a little bit, say in Eastern Congo, where hydropower is now being available to the mission, or where power purchase agreements in Somalia may use UN funding to leverage access to energy and build up the infrastructure that the markets are making available around the world, but generally are not willing to take the risk on fragile conflict-affected states. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so I think there's a way that missions could think longer term, work with the country teams, look at the SDGs, look at the climate goals of the host nation where they deploy, and start in the beginning to say, how do we both serve the needs of and the goals of a peace operation to prevent conflict and create a stable environment, and 
use the resources we're bringing with us in places like Mali to shorten the supply chain, right? Mm. Uh, and save lives and also potentially increase access for the communities they serve to energy. Interesting. Um, before, <laughs> no, that, that, that that's, I'd not heard of that. That sounds, We've, I mean, let's do it. <laughs> well, we'll tell you what, we're rolling out a study on this in January. I'm happy to share that. Oh, there you go. Tease, tease the Stimson Center study on this. <laughs> Um, uh, is there anything else you wanted to get in, discuss? You know, I have you know been learning from you on UN peacekeeping operations for you know years and years. Um, so I'm sure there are questions I didn't ask that would be interesting to hear you answer. Um, wh- is there anything else you wanted to 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 mention, discuss, get in, emphasize? I think we've also. I think the question of how and when authorization to use force is one that the Security Council will need to grapple with. And I think the U.S. can lead on this. It's often come up in the context of Africa, where the African Union and African-led forces have been willing to do interventions in places like Somalia, Mali, Burundi, Central African Republic. ECOWAS has led in the past in West Africa. And it's often done this with bilateral support from other nations, including the United States. And there's been a real push to see if the UN can increasingly pay for and support these peace enforcement missions, coalition operations. And I think that this issue needs to get addressed in two different aspects. It's often been cast as a money issue that, you know, the UN should just pay for this and that nations, including the United States, are hesitating because they're cheap. I don't think that's the issue. Um, The fundamental issue is should the United Nations be paying for what is basically um, warfighting capabilities, peace enforcement missions, which traditionally have been authorized by the Security Council, blessed by it, but not led or funded by it, because the nature of UN missions is they're not warfighting. They can handle operational and tactical use of force to protect civilians, but going to war against extremists in the Sahel, for example, mm-hmm. is not something that UN missions are designed to do as a military capability. Um, so I think that there needs to be some return to thinking about how to support African and African Union-led forces, how that they can be equipped with both the right political backing and the capability to deliver, but not have them confused with the architecture of UN missions. Mm-hmm. And maybe it, we, we've talked about this for a long time. There can be case-by-case basis using the charter um, in Chapter 8. Uh to basically come up with a way that the Security Council can back and support these missions. But I think that that is an ongoing challenge that has to get reckoned with, uh, particularly as conflict increasingly targets civilians. I don't think this problem is going to go away. So I, I won't read you the Shrebenica report, but we have to remember not to be confused by, um, you know, we, we need to have a clear-ish line between the expanded peace operations of the modern era and what war fighting looks like. Hmm. Um, the Security Council, I think, is a very important forum, and it's a place where the United States is able to work with both great allies and great competitors. And I've mentioned that peace operations is often an area where there is more cooperation than not. But I think that that, the Council has been going through a, a, a time of increased competition, and the U.S. needs to come in and recognize that and also be under, able to understand how, whether it's nonproliferation or climate change, 
peace and security or um, human rights, that that is a primary forum for trying to both express interests and values and reinforce uh, both to the world. Um, I also think that the United Nations should take some heart. It does a lot of good around the world. And I say this mostly because whenever I visit missions, I am taken aback at the number of individuals who are doing creative, often brave, and very flexible things to try and support the mandates they've been given. Uh, and it's it's humbling. And this is in peacekeeping missions and humanitarian operations. It's the panels of experts who try and track down who's violating sanctions regimes. Uh, it's the ones who are thinking about long-term peace building or individuals trying to report on the use of chemical weapons and restore accountability mechanisms. So I don't think we should lose sight of the power in the field of the tools of the Security Council and the importance of focusing and strengthening its efforts to prevent conflict. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Victoria. This was great. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Tori. That was great. Uh, you know, I mentioned this in the episode, but I have learned from Tori Holt for years. Me being a reporter on the periphery of the UN, her being deep inside the policymaking process. And I was glad to have the excuse to chat with her in depth about UN peacekeeping and what makes UN peacekeeping work. So thank you very much to Tori Holt, and I'll post a link to her bio from the Stimson Center in the show notes of this episode. And again, thank you to the Better World Campaign for partnering with the podcast on this series. Please visit getusback.org to learn more about this partnership and view other episodes as part of this series. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.